because it's the home of the life-giving source. God is not the author of death. And God didn't create light just to take it away from us. He is the giver of life. Now, the Apostle John often speaks about the life that we have in Christ. You know that from our study in 1 John that we've had on Wednesday nights for the past couple of years. But in the Gospel of John, in the opening part of his Gospel, uh, John uh, states that life is in Christ. He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And there the word life is from the Greek word zoe, and it actually means all different types of life. And here John uses it for life in the eternal sense. Often Jesus talked about himself as the giver of life. He says in John chapter 6, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. In the 58th verse of that 6th chapter, this is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. And then back in the 4th chapter, verse 14, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus is life. And so we would expect that since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, that wherever he is, things are growing, things are prospering, things are, or people are, living life to the fullest. And that is really what heaven is. And so we would expect that abundance of life would capture John's attention as he views this city because everything that he knows of that hinders life is absent, noticeably absent from this wonderful, beautiful city of God. Now, the chapter opens with a vision of a pure water, river of water that flows from the throne of God. And uh, we've talked about this as the water of life. Verse 1 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And we've talked about how that water is the symbol of salvation, Uh, Water is uh, an essential part of physical life. We do know that. Pure water is clean and refreshing and satisfying for the thirsty. Uh, We can do without food for a a while, some of us longer than others, because we're well stocked up and carry it a lot around with us. But we can do without food for long periods of time. But no matter who you are, you're not going to go very long without water. And so we consider water to be a life-sustaining Substance, And that's why I think that the river of water is so prominent in the New Jerusalem. This river flows from God's throne, and it flows throughout the city, lining the streets of the city. And whether that's real H2O, I don't know. Uh, I do know that our bodies are going to be physiologically different from what they are now, and so water is not going to be necessary for life. But this pure water is a constant reminder that the reason that we are in heaven is because of the washing of regeneration that has been supplied by the giver of life. Then secondly, we looked at the tree of life in verse number 2. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And that tree of life reminds us of the tree that was planted in the Garden of Eden, 
there were two prominent trees that were in Eden. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then there was the tree of life. And as long as Adam was innocent, as long as he was without sin, he was permitted to eat of the tree of life. And uh, I, I could only imagine how delicious that the fruit of that tree must have been. But Adam sinned, and when he did... Or he sinned by eating of the one tree that God said that he couldn't eat of. And so God barred him from eating of that tree of life ever again. And that was actually God's protection for Adam. Because if he ate of this tree in that sinful condition, then he would have continued to live in the miserable state of sin forever. And so God blocked the way to the tree of life. And he put cherubim there, these cherubim with flaming swords at the entrance to the Garden of Eden that blocked the way so that Adam could not return to the garden and eat of that tree. Well, here in these verses, we see that there is a tree of life in heaven. And again, I don't know if eating of that tree is necessary to sustain life. It could be a means of preservation because God often uses means to accomplish his purposes. Uh, If we do have to eat of the tree, it's not a tree like we know of now, and the fruit of that tree is not going to act on our bodies in the same way that it does now. As we know, when we ingest food, there's a a chemical breakdown. There's a destruction and and decay in the things that we eat. And since we're not going to have those same physical body processes, uh, this fruit is not going to act on us in the same way. So this is just part of this thing about life in heaven that God really doesn't explain to us and we just have to wait till we get there to find out the purpose for this and what God has in mind. Now this evening we're going to move on then into verses 3 and 4 where John says, and there shall be no more curse but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. Well thirdly tonight We'll spend our time with the blessing of life. Now, there is no better news than what you read here in this statement, and there shall be no more curse. You can sum up all the trouble that the world has ever seen in that word curse. And I don't think we need to rehearse the story of the fall of man tonight, but that is the source of the curse. God clearly warned Adam that death would be the result of his eating of the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. Death would come because of his disobedience. God is pure truth. God never lies. And so when Adam ate of that tree, it happened exactly as God said. Now, there's a contrast between life in heaven and life on earth. Now, without Christ, we, do, we, we know, and the Bible teaches this, that we are the servants of sin. We're the servants of sin. Now, we, we, even when we're saved, of course, we still have our sinful nature. And destruction and sin is, has marred God's universe. Sin has infected every living creature upon the earth, the lives of every creature, And I said a moment ago that God is the source of life, and he didn't create life just to take it away. Death came because of man's activity, not because of God. And that curse that God put upon man left him subject to an inescapable death. Well, the good news here is the Bible says that in heaven this curse is gone. But we might ask a question about that. Is it possible that we might sin again and bring that curse again upon us and bring death once again. If we achieve paradise once again, is it possible that we could ruin it like we did before? 
Now, I think that that's an interesting point for us to consider because when Adam was created and put into the Garden of Eden, he was created without a sin nature. There wasn't anything that was within Adam that would cause him to disobey God. Now, today, for you and I, that's not true. Uh, we're, we're much different from that. When Adam sinned, he, he was considered the federal head of the human race. And so all of humanity was tried in Adam in that garden, and he is our representative. And his sinful nature was passed on to us. And every single person that's born into the world has that sinful nature. And not only do we have the potential to sin, but we do have that nature that's alien to God. And it's not perfect as Adam's nature was. Our nature is not disposed towards God, but in fact, as the scriptures teach, we are disposed against him. And that's from the moment that we take our first breath. And what that does to us is to render us incapable in the spiritual world. The fall of man was radical so that it affected every faculty in man. Our bodies, our will, our activity is always against God. But Adam wasn't created that way. He was created without that sinful nature, and that sin did not arise from anything that was within Adam. When we get to heaven, we're going to be returned to that state. The sinful nature has been destroyed so that there's nothing in us that would cause us to sin. So you look at that and you think, well, what is the difference between the circumstances of the original state of Adam and the state that we will be in when we get to heaven? Adam sinned without a sinful nature. And so what's going to keep us from sinning if we don't have a sinful nature? So the question then is, can there be a possibility of renewing the curse? And that's actually a valid question to ask. So what is different between the Garden of Eden uh, and, man, and, and heaven as far as man's innocence is concerned? Well, we, we could answer that question by saying that God will make it possible so that we can never sin by taking away the freedom of man, that God constrains us in a new way so that we can't sin. And that, if that's the answer, and it could be, then that goes against those that object or those that insist that man must have free will. Now, one of the things that people argue about, the uh, argument against the election of sinners to salvation, at least in the minds of some, is that it takes away man's free will. And the argument goes from this side, from those folks, that we could not truly love God unless our love is free and unconstrained. And that God does not want people to serve him out of coercion, but he wants a people that love him and appreciate him only for this act of sending Christ into the world to die for us. And that ought to be motive in itself for us to love God and for all of us to love him freely. Well, that sounds like a reasonable position. It sounds pretty good, but it's actually an impossible situation. And that's because the sinful nature of man prevents it. Unless God gives us a new nature, then we're incapable of loving him. Now, the old nature has never had anything that good that, good that came from it. And it's as simple as what God says in both the Old and the New Testaments. Both of these, both places say this, there is none that doeth good. And so you would ask, well, is it good to love Christ? Is it good to come to Christ for, sal- for salvation? Well, I think everybody would raise their hand and say, well, of course, that's a good thing. But the Bible said there's nothing good that comes from man. 
So how could our free will ever lead us to God? It couldn't come from within us naturally because there is no person that does good. And that alone tells us that any positive response that man makes towards God is because God has given him new ability. And so you're right back to that original premise that the free will of man will not lead him to Christ. But we have a different scenario in heaven. Men no longer have the sinful nature that prevent them from loving God. We've been returned to innocence. And so is our will constrained in a different way than Adam when he sinned and when he was created innocent? What is the difference between the garden and heaven? Well, the big difference is there is no temptation to sin. The tempter is gone. Satan has been locked down in hell and never to be heard from again. So there is no outside coercion like Adam had. There's nothing inside of man also. He said the sinful nature is gone. So there's nothing in him that would cause him to sin. And so man's will does not have to be constrained to serve God because he has no desire to do otherwise. Everything that we see in heaven, everything that we are, compels us to serve God. And there's nothing that moves us away from that desire. We know Christ with perfect knowledge when we get to heaven. We have the perfect mind of Christ. So we have no more desire to sin than Christ had to sin. The Apostle Paul said this, said, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And there Paul was speaking about the love that we ought to have for our fellow Christians. And if we master that, if we're able to do that, then at least we've conquered the old sinful nature in that area. But there's always the possibility while we're in this life that we'll slip, that we'll fall from that, from that position and we'll sin again. And the reason that we do is because the sin nature is still there and the tempter is still here. But in heaven, that sinful nature and the tempter are gone. And when we have the mind of Christ, when we get to heaven, there's nothing that could ever move us away from that. And so we love God perfectly and willingly because our mind is the perfect mind of Christ. Now that's really part of the blessing of life. The misery of life that's still subject to the curse is gone. Heaven is as it was intended to be. Heaven is a return to innocence where we're supremely happy because we have been made like Christ. And this is what God is. God is supremely happy in himself. And when we have the mind of Christ, we will also be supremely happy. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now there we see that the receiving of the incorruptible body is the end of death, which is the same as saying that the incorruptible body is the end of the curse. The curse results in death, and if there is no more death, then it means there must be no more curse. So now... We have a reoriented life. Things are different when we get to heaven. We were the servants of sin, but then we become the servants of righteousness. Now, that's true that when we get saved here in this life, we know Christ as Savior, that we are also called servants of righteousness. But there's a difference here again. That nature, as I've said, the old sin nature is gone. Now, have you ever noticed how that the writers of the New Testament teach us that there ought to be a taste of heaven in us right now? 
This is what Paul says in Romans 6. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Now, why does he expect that we would have this little bit of taste of heaven in us now? Well, there's actually a great answer to that question, and we've, it's in some verses that we've spent a good deal of time studying on Wednesday evenings. 1 John 5:11 says, and this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And so the answer to that question is that eternal life is in us right now. Eternal life is not a far-off distant hope for a Christian. We, we don't have to wait until we die to receive eternal life. We have it now. And so, in other words, we have that taste of heaven in us, and that's why we have become the servants of righteousness. But you know the problem that we still have living here. There's still that sinful nature, and until it's gone, uh, until this corruptible body puts on its incorruption, that's when we're going to be perfect servants of righteousness. Well, in verse number 3, it says, His servants shall serve him. And that sounds like perhaps a simplistic statement, but it's really not. We were created to glorify God. We were created to worship him. And in heaven, we are returned to that original purpose. Or better said, we might put it this way. We have been enabled to the original purpose that God created us for. So what are we going to do? We're going to serve him. The activity of heaven can be summed up in the one word, worship, Or if you prefer to use the word service, that's all right because it amounts to the same thing. Every act of service is an act of worship. We do for God because that's the way that we worship him. Now, there's kind of an interesting twist on this word serve at the end of verse number three. This is actually a word that uh, is not used often in in the New Testament, but it's a word that comes from the Old Testament speaking of the priest that served in the temple. And it's a word that means a a peculiar type of service, a service that's rendered to God because Israel was God's chosen people. It was only the priest of Israel that could serve God in this way, having the divine ordinances that God gave. And only the priests were able to do that, and only the priest of Israel were able to do it. And when we get to heaven, the Bible teaches that all of us are going to be priests, that our service to God is peculiar. It's different from that of the angels. And I can't tell you what all that that service entails, but it's made possible because we are the chosen elect people of God. And we have been chosen to this priesthood in heaven, so we'll serve God there as priest. And then there's also a special meaning this verse can, concerning continual service. It says, His servants shall serve him. And in the original language, that has the force of continuous service. We'll never stop serving him. And that's an indication of what heaven is going to be like. Heaven will be a place of continual activity. Now, if you'll turn back a a few pages to the seventh chapter of Revelation, we have an indication of continuous worship in heaven. Revelation 7, if you'll look at verse number 13, it says, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, 
What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? Now there he's talking about this group of people that are in heaven. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, listen, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living waters, fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Now there is some beautiful imagery in those verses. In verse 17 we have the allusion to the water of life. The Lamb shall lead them to living fountains of waters. And then we have this this glorious passage in Revelation chapter 5. If you want to go back there for just a moment, this is one of my favorite parts of the entire Bible. Revelation 5 verse 11, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beast and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. And so if you want to know what heaven is like, you sum it up in this word, worship. Day and night we worship. Now, of course, we understand the Bible says there is no night in heaven. And so that is an expression of continual activity. I mean, it's put that way in order that we can relate to it. So in heaven, we'll be the perfect servants of righteousness and we'll serve and worship God and the Lamb forever and ever. Now, you think about this. This is really a good thing that Christians are going to be changed in in order to render this continuous service to God because there are a lot of Christians that don't think a lot about worship and some don't desire to worship very much. Some don't even desire to be in church. You know, I was reading a, a comment that uh, J. Vernon McGee made, and I thought this was pretty good, and it, and it kind of spoke to me. He said, I've always said this facetiously, but it could be true. If he will, I want God to let me teach the Bible in heaven. I want to attend the classes which Paul teaches, and then I would like to teach those people who are members of the churches I served on the earth, but who would not attend the midweek Bible studies. I have asked to teach them for one million years, and I tell you, they won't think it's heaven for the first one million years. I'm really going to work them and make them catch up. Whether that will be true or not, I don't know, but I do say that we're all going to be busy there. I could, I I fit right in with those sentiments. There's a lot of work, folks, that goes into the midweek Bible study, and uh, the the majority of the church, in fact, does not see much very value in that. I mean, I know there's people that can't come on Wednesday nights, and I'm not really really raking anybody here because of that, but I'm just saying that whenever we can avail ourselves of the opportunity to hear God's Word and to learn from it, we ought to do that. That's going to get you prepared for heaven. 
And so some, some that don't see any value in the Wednesday evening service have got a lot of catching up to do. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of the nitty-gritty that we get down to in the Bible study on Wednesday evenings. Now, thirdly, we receive the seal of ownership. Verse number four says, And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. Now, these are really some sweet words. And they shall see his face. One of my favorite songs is Face to Face. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be? When with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Face to face I shall behold him far beyond the starry sky. Face to face in all his glory I shall see him by and by. There's another great song that's entitled Saved by Grace. This one says, Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I awake within the palace of the king. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story, Saved by Grace. And I shall see him face to face and tell the story, Saved by Grace. That song was written by Fanny J. Crosby. She became blind when she was only two months old. She'd never actually seen a face that she could ever remember. And the only way that she could tell what a person looked like was not by seeing, but feeling their face. So she'd never actually seen a face that she could remember. Can you imagine what it must have been like for her when she, when she died and she woke up in heaven? And there the very first face that she would see is the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a, what a blessing that must have been. Now, we've been warned previously in Scripture about seeing God's face. And I say warned about it because seeing him is not a good thing. Scripture says that no one has seen God at any time. And in Exodus Exodus 33, verse 20, God said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. Now, the Apostle John is very much aware of Scripture. And he was very much aware of that particular verse. And I'm sure that this was a special point of emphasis for him when he says they shall see his face. In heaven, things are changed. God will allow us to see him in his glory, and we shall see his face. And, and again, I think what a, what a marvelous point of emphasis that was for John when the Bible is so clear about this. God says, you cannot see me and live. Not in this life, not as you are now. You can't see God and live. He's too highly, too high, he's too holy. But then he says, things are going to change. We shall see his face. And then he says something else here. They shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there's another great point of emphasis John was one who loved to write on the, on the assurance of our salvation, on eternal security. He recorded great statements in the Gospel of John that Jesus spoke about eternal security. For, in, for instance, in John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now, here in Revelation, there is a superlative about the guarantee of eternal life. God puts his name in our foreheads. We belong to him. 
And if you wanted to put it this way, he puts his brand on us. He puts a seal on us, the seal of ownership. Now, the Bible talks about God sealing us. We find this in Ephesians. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1, And whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. In the fourth chapter, verse number 30, it says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now that seal is an inward seal. That's a seal that nobody sees. But the mark that we're talking about here in Revelation is a mark that all will see. God will seal us, which is another guarantee that we are his and his forever. He will never leave us or forsake us. Listen to this great verse in the third chapter. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. God wants us to know that we belong to him. Is there any better feeling than that? to know that you belong to God. How could heaven be any better than this than to have this promise of complete safety and security? And it seems that what God is trying to do for us here is to give us every confidence that we lacked on earth concerning our salvation in Christ. Now, the Bible actually teaches that there is no reason for a Christian to doubt his salvation, that if you obey God, you listen to him, Uh, You can be sure it, but you trust God's word. There's no reason to doubt that you're truly saved unless it's that problem that we all have of that inherent sinful nature. And what it does, it continually wars against the the, uh, new nature that has been implanted in us by regeneration. That war goes on continually, and all of us know that sometimes the old flesh wins battles against us. It's always warring. It's going to continue as long as you're a Christian. Sometimes the flesh wins. And that's because our faith gets a little bit weak sometimes and we fail. Thank the Lord we have the... He he helps us to overcome that. But when we get to heaven, those wars are over. Again, the sinful nature is gone. So there's not that continual fight anymore. And so we have absolute peace and safety and security in heaven. Now, I do want to take note here of a, of a contrast that's put into this place, and, and perhaps it's here for us to remember and recognize that there is a contrast because there is another name that is written in another people's foreheads. This is in the 13th chapter. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, who's that talking about? The Antichrist. That's the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the emissary of Satan, and he marks his territory. Satan marks his territory just like God does. And these people that follow him gladly receive his mark. But have you noticed that there's a very different destiny for them? 
Revelation 17:8 says, The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Again, talking about the Antichrist, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. In the 19th chapter, verse 20, And the beast was taken, again, that's the Antichrist, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. Now that's the false prophet and the Antichrist. And then the followers we find in Revelation 20, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so there is a very different destiny for people depending upon whose name is written on them. There's a very different outcome. So folks, that tells all of us we need to be sure whose name that we're going under. Who is it that we want his name to be placed upon us? Acts 4.12, you know well, says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now let me add just one more comment, and we'll finish up here. This, um, In closing here, I was reading someone who made a statement about these verses that we've just read, and this person wrote it this way. Those who took the mark of the beast on their foreheads, Revelation 13.16, as a sign of their obedience and worship of the beast, had their names removed from the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 13, 8, 17, 8, 19, 20. We just read those verses. Did you see anything in there where it said that anybody had their name removed from the book of life? The Bible doesn't say that. Names are not removed from the book of life because these names that he's talking about were never written there. Those who have their names in the book of life are those that our God has saved. It's the record of whom God is going to save. And their names were written down before the foundation of the world and none of them can be lost. God does not write down names and erase names. We're talking about an omniscient God here and what a foolish, worthless exercise it would be for an omniscient God to write down names that he knows he's going to erase. Makes no sense at all. These are people with their names written in the Lamb's book of life and they are the very same ones that one day will have his name written in their foreheads. And the Bible says they will serve him and they will see his face and they have this promise of safety and salvation and security in heaven forever and forever. What a blessing it is to know that. Safe and secure in Jesus. And I said a moment ago, you have a taste of heaven in you right now. Eternal life is in you now. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are as safe as if you were already there. And doesn't the Bible call us citizens of heaven? We already have the paperwork done, folks. It's just a matter of getting there now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for... The great blessing it is to talk about heaven, to talk about you, and, and uh, what great words we read here in the book of Revelation. The water of life, the tree of life, the blessing of life, all of that is there just waiting for us in that entrance that we have into that eternal city because we know you. Lord, I just pray if there's anybody here that doesn't have that assurance that right now they would turn their, their lives over to you and... and um, 
surrender themselves to this great work that you've done at Calvary. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.